So I have been a big believer of don't take breaks from the thing that's really making you unhappy. Change the thing that's really making you unhappy. Welcome to Teach Me Something New. I'm your host, Britt Morin, and this is a production of iHeartRadio and Brit Co. All my life, everyone's told me I should focus on being good at one thing. But the truth is, I'm curious about a lot of things. But how do you learn about everything? The answer? Make the world's best experts teach you in less than an hour. So come along with me as we all learn something new. When was the last time you unplugged? No, like really unplugged. I'm pretty guilty when it comes to screen time and phone addiction, but at what point is staying connected actually hurting us? We'll tackle this question and more with today's guest, Cal Newport. Cal is a computer science professor at Georgetown and a New York Times bestselling author of seven books. His most recent release is A World Without Email, Reimagining Work in an Age of Communication Overload. He joins me to teach us all about digital minimalism and how cutting back on technology can transform our productivity, creativity, and so much more. Let's see if he lives up to his nickname, the Marie Kondo of technology. Welcome, Cal. I'm so glad you could join us today. Hi, Britt. Well, thanks for having me on. I love this nickname that we've coined for you collectively now. And I'm really excited because I actually think that a lot of us have been using screens more than ever in the wake of COVID right now. People are craving getting away from their screens, getting away from their devices more than ever before. So how would you actually describe your relationship with technology today? Are you at this point living an unplugged life? No, my life is not unplugged, but it's definitely minimalist. And I think this is where the Mary Kondo comparison probably might be instructive, though I will admit I didn't really know much about her until that was said, and then I had to go backwards and (laughs) learn some more. But if you think about, let's say, Kondo's approach to physical clutter is very much built around intention. Mm -hmm. Keep the stuff that is really important to you. Well, this is my approach for technology. What is actually serving things you really care about? Great. Let's use that tech. Let's know why we're using that tech. Let's put some guide rails on it, because now that we know why we're using it, we can be a little bit more targeted. And the stuff that doesn't serve a big purpose, whatever the technological equivalent of spark joy is, we don't need it. And so in my life, for example, there's plenty of technologies I use, but there's also notably technologies I don't. The fact, for example, that I've never had a social media account, I think makes me maybe the last person in America under the age of 65, for which that's true. So when you get intentional, it doesn't lead you away from all tech, but it leads you to some pretty unique configurations. And how do you choose what tech to use or not use. I know we're going to unpack this a lot. And then my follow-up to that is when you say tech or technology, are you talking about apps and folders all over my computer desktop and emails? Or are you talking about devices all over my house and there's a Siri over here and an Alexa over here and I have a connected photo frames (laughs) all in my dining room and actually like the hardware and the software, I guess. Right. Well, it's a good question because it underscores the complexity of our technological landscape right now. There's so many different things that count as technology. So in my work, there's a couple distinctions I make. One clear distinction is between professional technology and technology in your personal life. And so if you look at my books, for example, 
My most recent book is really about technology in the workplace, email, Slack, these type of things. The book that came out before that, the digital minimalism book, is really about technology in our personal life. So now we're talking about phones, we're talking about streaming media, we're talking about, for sure, social media. So those are two separate magisteria. How I think about work technologies like email is very different than how I think about what's in your personal life. And then when we focus on your personal life, where I really focus is on technology that is trying to arrest or acquire your attention. So I'm a little bit less interested in the microwave. I'm a little bit less interested in the Siri device that you have in your room. I think more about the things that's delivered through a screen, the things that pulls your attention insistently back towards it away from the other things that's going on. That's where I think we have probably the biggest need to get a lot more intention into our behavior. Got it. I want to actually go into those two buckets because you made the distinction between your personal life and your work life. So let's go deep on personal life. What are the types of things that you've learned we could be doing to make our personal lives with technology better? Well, one of the big things I discovered when I looked into this topic pretty deeply is that a lot of the growing dissatisfaction people had with the devices in their personal life, this dissatisfaction that really started growing around five years ago, it didn't come so much from specifically what they were doing on these devices. So it's not so much, I'm looking at this app and this app makes me unhappy. The real source of unhappiness seemed to be what it was taking their attention away from. So it's not anything terrible that's happening if I'm scrolling Instagram, but the real loss is I'm with my kids and I'm not paying attention with my kids and I'm not going to get that moment back. That seemed to be at the core of people's dissatisfaction. And so what I preach is my philosophy, digital minimalism, is that we basically have to empty this metaphorical closet. Say, let me just step back from all these different apps and services and devices that I use regularly that aren't essential for my work, aren't essential for my life, but more diverting or interesting. Get a little bit of space and then figure out what we want to put back into that metaphorical closet. So what are the things that actually give me a lot of value? So right away, that's going to cut back pretty severely what is in your life, but then you get this extra benefit. Once you know why you're using a particular piece of technology, now you can shape how you use it in a way that's really to your advantage, right? If Facebook is just something that's generically in your life, you might be on that app all the time. But if you recognize the reason you use Facebook is because there's a Facebook group that's important to you, suddenly you realize, well, I don't need this on my phone. It can just be on my computer. I can bookmark the groups page and jump right past the news feed. And I can check this twice a week for 15 minutes and get all of that value without all the distraction of the old way I was using it. So once you know why you're using tech, it not only cuts down on what you use, Mm. it puts you in the driver's seat to be much more intentional about how you use it. I think that's really interesting. I've actually also turned off almost all of the notifications on my phone because to your point, they are distracting. They are grabbing my attention in moments I don't want my attention bifurcated between something. And then I've also done social media detoxes or things like that. What do you think about those? Are those useful? Should we be doing those on like a regular cadence? Or is there like a breaking point that we need to be doing them? And maybe I'm not asking the right person because you're not on social media at all. But Mm -hmm. what have you found was the most productive way to balance our lives in that way? Well, I've often used the alternative term declutter instead of detox. I've actually been a critic about the way that the notion of a detox has been adapted from the substance abuse community to the technology community because Mm. in the substance abuse community, the whole core of a detox is to make lasting change in your life, right? So you do not go to a alcohol addiction clinic 
with the idea that I need to take a one month break from alcohol. And then when I'm done with that, I'll go back to drinking again. It's the first step towards a fundamental transformation of your life. And yet this term got altered in the world of our relationship with personal technology devices where we made it into a break. And I'm not a big believer that just taking a break from something that is a persistent source of negative affect is the key. I think the key is to persistently remove the negative affect. So I use the term declutter because what I think people need to do is step away, not just to get a breather, but to use that space to fundamentally and permanently change what they use and how they use it. So I have been a big believer of don't take breaks from the thing that's really making you unhappy. Change the thing that's really making you unhappy. That actually hits me really hard. I agree with you there. You know, it's like we have this one week of bliss, we being the collective population of people that have ever taken a detox of something. Or even I was recently on vacation and I quote unquote detoxed, but in your version, decluttered email for real, you know, because you weren't checking it as often. And there is this element of such profound happiness and time and space and the ability to think. And then what happens after that, right? You come back from vacation or back from your social detox. And it's actually worse than before because now I have this pile up of stuff that's in my inboxes. My messages are full on Facebook. My DMs are full on Instagram. I've got so many missed text messages I wasn't able to get back to. And I actually get more stressed out than before. So it's kind of a one step forward, two steps backwards. Yep. So your point is start minimizing it. And desktop versus mobile is maybe one way to do that for a lot of people. Is that the first like practical step to take? Well, I would say once you get intentional about the use of a particular tool, there's a lot of different directions it could take. I would say, yeah, moving things off the phone is often a part of that process because in many of these apps that are most arresting to our attention, there's a lot of engineering investment being put into the mobile versions of these apps with the explicit goal of capturing attention. The web-based versions that you would view on your desktop doesn't have that same manipulative energy put into the actual product. Mm -hmm. So for example, in the not my most recent book, but the book before that, I talked about this experiment where I had 1,600 people go through this process of taking a month off and then rebuilding from scratch their relationship with tools. Mm. And one of the things I tracked was, roughly speaking, about half of the people had things in their life that made at least some social media use important. So they kept some social media in their life, and the other half basically had no use for social media. Of the half that kept some social media in their life, when they went through this exercise at the end of the break of the period to say, how do I want to use this now they know why I'm using it, almost none of them kept it on their phone. So I think moving things off your phone to a computer where you have to type in the password and it's annoying, mm-hmm. you know, so it takes you 30 seconds. You got to get the post-it note out of the drawer and type it and don't save it. <laughs> Is that where you keep your passwords, Cal? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I don't have any of these services to log into, but it's where I would. <laughs> and then you have a schedule. You know, like I like this Britain Co. content on the Instagram feed is aspirational to me. It's my Sunday afternoon ritual. I sit down for 30 minutes on my nice big monitor and Mm. I enjoy catching up on those posts. That's the way that people start to think about this as opposed to I am bored in the moment. Hey, algorithms divert me. And then you bring up your phone and just let it wash over you. Yeah, it's so bad. I've tried to do that a lot. I mean, I'm hardly on Facebook on my phone. I do have Messenger because, to your point, I have some group threads in Messenger that are important to me, but I guess I can move that to desktop. Instagram is obviously like probably most people's vice of the moment, unless you're under 25, where it's probably TikTok or Snap from a social perspective. Let's move to email because I have this incessant 
drip of email. I don't get notifications, but it's the adrenaline rush, right? Or is it like a dopamine impact that I'm just like checking my mail, checking my mail, like making sure, or maybe it's just my anxiety at running a company, running a venture fund that I'm like, can't miss an important email. Like what can I do to calm myself down about email itself? Yeah. I mean, this was what was really interesting about going back to back with a book about personal technology and then a book about email is that there's a huge contrast. And it's a surprising contrast because on the surface, the issue seems very similar. I look at Instagram too much. I look at my email inbox too much. So we figure, okay, there must be similar dynamics going on, but it's actually quite different when you look closer. So when we think about looking at Instagram, the personal frame is probably the right frame, right? This is you as an individual using this as a default for diversion or something like this. And and the solutions have to do with you reshaping your personal relationship with these tools. The tools themselves are engineered to be addictive, so you're up against a sort of pretty big foe here. With email, it's a very different situation. The argument of my new book is that the reason we check email so much is not so much a personal failure of will. I also don't think the addiction frame is accurate for trying to understand why we look at email so much. My argument is it's the underlying way that we're implicitly organizing collaboration in our companies. Mm. So what I document is that after email spread in the 90s, along with it came a new approach to collaboration that I call the hyperactive hive mind. And with this approach, it's let's just figure things out back and forth on the fly with unscheduled messages. Now, originally, this was all done in email. Now you have tools like Slack or Teams that can do this hyperactive hive mind even faster with even low friction, but it's the same idea. My argument is if this is the main way that you have agreed to collaborate, we'll just figure things out on the fly. It's completely rational and, if anything, unavoidable that you have to check your inbox all the time. Because these asynchronous back and forth conversations is how collaboration is happening. And anytime you're not in there, it's time that you're slowing down half a dozen, dozen of these conversations. There might be a real impact. Mm. And so my argument is that very much unlike our relationship with our phone, it's very personal. To fix this hyper-checking relationship with email, it's a systemic issue. We have to actually replace this method of collaboration in our companies with alternative ways of collaborating that don't require so many unscheduled messages. What are those ways? I mean, I've seen a lot of new apps this year in particular, given that most workplaces have gone remote, where there's like video messaging that is still asynchronous though on your desktop, but you only can message people who are live right now, like who are at their desktop too. So you know when people aren't there, you can't just like leave them a message. That was like one sort of innovative way to do it. But what would you recommend, especially in an era where we can't be face-to-face? Well, first of all, a tool-first approach isn't going to solve it, right? So just replacing a tool with another tool, the tool can't solve the issue. And the reason is, is that what we actually have to do is process engineering. So each organization or each freelancer, whoever we're talking about, has to actually start doing the work of saying, here are the things we do again and again. I call them processes in the book. Here's the things we come back to again and again in our team or our company. We publish podcast episodes. We have to put together marketing campaigns. We do whatever, analytics for product launches. It's certain things that happen again and again. It's the primary drivers of value for your team or organization. You then have to look at these, right, one by one and say, how are we actually implementing this process? How does the information flow? How do we collaborate about it? If you don't have an explicit answer, the default is probably the hyperactive hive mind. Like, yeah, we just rock and roll. Mm. We'll just kind of figure this out on the fly. So you have to actually start going process by process. And as a team, come together as a freelancer, make this decision on your own. What are our new 
alternative rules for how we store information, how we transfer information, how we talk about things and make decisions, how we move from step to step in this. And it looks very different. The answer here looks very different depending on what the process is. This is why there's not a tool first solution. Mm. Where tools come in is after you're looking at a particular process. How are we going to re-engineer this so it's not just going back and forth with unscheduled messages? When answering that question, then you might look out on the toolbox of available digital tools and say, well, why don't we plug in a little base camp here, or use some Trello over there, or use this video app. Like, then technology can be very useful, but it's tools second. It's tools being deployed to implement something you've already thought through as a better way of implementing these processes. So I think this is what knowledge work writ large is going to be going through in the next five to 10 years, hmm. is adopting the same process engineering mindset that the industrial sector adopted in the early 20th century unlocking massive growth and productivity because once they got serious about what's the best way to actually build a car, it turns out you can do it much better. We're the same place in knowledge work. We're working in a very rudimentary way right now because the digital age, the digital era of knowledge work is very new. We're going to get more sophisticated. That's the way it's going to go. Mm. So no tool can save us, but our solutions are going to use lots of tools. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Okay, so let me unpack that and make sure I heard you correctly. So what you're saying is, I liked this analogy of the 20th century, 21st century. Like, if we were building cars using our sort of strategy right now, there'd be like a hodgepodge of different types of mechanics and builders and manufacturers just like making things in silos and trying to mix and match them together to build this car. Whereas what ended up happening was they were like, oh, wait, we should have an assembly line the frame should get built first by these people and then the tires get put on by these people. And so right now we have not yet moved into the assembly line phase of digital work and digital collaboration. But eventually when we understand the processes an organization needs, we'll be able to better structure those and structure our time around those and the tools we need to use for them as well. Is that right? That's exactly right. The name for the way they used to build cars was called the craft method. If you go to the Highland Park factory, Ford factory in the early 20th century, you would put a chassis on two sawhorses and you would have a team of engineers and craftsmen and mechanics sit around this chassis and put stuff on it. And they file things down and fit things on. It's by far the most natural and obvious way to build a car. And the way you scaled up your factory is you just had more sawhorses and more teams. You're building 15 cars at a time instead of one, right? So it was about a 10x wow. almost improvement on how quickly they could produce it. I think what we're doing now with the hyperactive hive mind is the knowledge work equivalent of the craft method. It's very obvious, very flexible, very natural. Let's just work things out, guys. We'll work it out on the fly. 
The problem is it doesn't scale. There's too many of these back and forth conversations going on. We end up having to check these inboxes constantly. Our brain can't switch its context so fast and we end up with a productivity mess. The only nuance I want to give here is the assembly line analogy makes people uncomfortable because it really was terrible to work on an assembly line. The difference between knowledge work and the industrial is that in the industrial sector, the human work was all reduced to these step-by-step processes. Whereas in knowledge work, one of the fundamental ideas, this comes from the guy who coined the term knowledge work, Peter Drucker, is that the actual execution of knowledge work, because it's skilled and creative, has to be left autonomous, right? You can't break down writing ad copy or computer code. You can't break that down into steps. Knowledge work, the actual execution, will always be creative and autonomous. The thing, though, that can be much more structured, and this is where I think the analogy applies, is how we organize that work. Mm. Don't tell me how to write ad copy, but we probably should have a pretty good system that figures out like how much ad should I have to work on at a time, and it prevents me from having to be in meetings for 15 hours a day and gets out of my way and lets me actually do my work. Right. The thing that needs to be structured in knowledge work is not how we do the actual high-skilled labor, but all the things that surround that, how we organize and collaborate about that labor. Mm. Do you think that's like a new role that's going to exist? Like, is there somebody's job? It's going to be, I mean, it should be the CEO's job, but I just feel like this is so detailed and process-driven that it should be somebody's job to be rethinking this for different teams within an organization. You know, I have this idea of a chief productivity officer as being a new addition to the C-suite. The reason why I think we need a separate actual executive position like that is because someone has to be able to resolve the otherwise unavoidable tension. So one of the things that happens in large organizations is that internal facing units in particular begin to think about what they're doing just in terms of like, how do we do what we're doing as efficiently and effectively as possible? So it's natural, right? We're in HR. We have compliance forms we need to get filled. We need tax information. So let's deploy this web interface that gets rid of the errors and really captures it well and puts in this database we can use better. But there's no one actually looking at the interaction between all these parts and saying, I know that makes your job easier, but now the people over here who are writing the computer code, that's going to be a huge cognitive burden over there. And that code is what we're selling. So maybe what we need to do is have a different way of gathering this. Maybe what we need is more people in HR. And there's one half day each month where they come to all the different people and say, let's sit down and I'll type stuff in the computer. You don't have to do it. And let's get all the information. We need We need someone who's thinking holistically mm-hmm. about, we have a bunch of attention capital that we're trying to transmute into value in the marketplace. You have to have someone looking at the whole picture, I think, to help create that culture. From an implementation standpoint, though, my argument is this should happen at the team level. So you can't figure out these processes for a whole large organization because it's too bespoke. You need much more flexibility and you need people feeling like they have Mm buy-in into the processes that are having a big say in their life. So I think teams should be figuring out their specific processes. But someone like a chief productivity officer should be empowering that culture and helping to resolve those tensions between your life getting easier is going to make this person's life harder, this person's life getting mm-hmm. easier is going to make that person's life harder. How do we figure out how to actually resolve those tensions? Oh, that's so interesting. I'm imagining like a data dashboard that these teams can be looking at that's maybe pulling in like their collective email time, sort of like times of day and just figuring out the balance, especially when things do ebb and flow from different team members. Or maybe, you know, you're actually getting predictive from an AI standpoint where it's like, we know that like the 14 days before a launch are obviously the most critical and all work and performance is really high during that time, but productivity is good. But then 
two days before the launch, it actually drops down low because most of the things are done. It's just a matter of pressing the button. I don't know, but I feel like that'd be like really interesting data set to understand and to better prepare for and prepare teams for even emotionally, right? Because as someone that has worked in Silicon Valley in the software industry for, I don't know, 15 years now, places like Google and Apple, but also now my own company, you really want to be careful about burnout of your employees. And it's really hard to know who's burned out and not when they're remote. And you don't have checks on like how much screen time they're using, how much email they're getting. It's also like there needs to exist a better feedback loop, especially for managers and the executive team to be able to even optimize some of this work. Yeah, you know, there's a company that did something like this, a software company called Rescue Time that has a product that you can put on your computer and it monitors all the different things that you're using. It also had people self-identifying, self-describing work activities as productive or unproductive. And they got all this nice data with the idea of maybe having metrics, maybe having dashboards. They hired some data scientists at some point. Say, look, can you look at this? We have this giant data set. We have 50,000 people or somewhat, you know, using this. And can we analyze this? And what they found was pretty horrifying, actually. So what they did is they recognized, this is a big point of my work too, that context shifts are really bad for cognitive work. So if you have to change your attention from the thing you're writing, look at an email inbox, you're now hosed for 10 to 20 minutes, right? Even if you just glance at that inbox for two seconds because you're waiting to see if your boss has emailed you, that initiated a very expensive context shift, which you then aborted and tried to bring your attention back to the writing. Our brains can't switch back and forth that quickly and it creates cognitive fatigue and it creates burnout and makes it harder to think clearly. So they divided the day of these people they were monitoring, tens of thousands of people, in the five-minute chunks. And then they would say, was there a check of an inbox or Slack in this chunks, they were just looking for five minute chunks, you know, where there wasn't wow. a switch from Slack or email. And they said, okay, now let's identify the chunks where people were doing productive work, self described productive work. And they added up, okay, how many of these five minute chunks are there of productive work in which you didn't have to during that five minutes check email or Slack? And the average was it added up to about an hour. Just the total number of these five minute chunks in which you weren't context shifting in the chunk only added up to about an hour. So there's only one hour per day in aggregate of time in which you weren't in the middle of a catastrophic context switch while trying to do something productive. So basically, they came away from that data saying the state of the affairs is just terrible. It's not like, well, we're here and we want to kind of tune it down a little bit. The dials were pegged. We are basically working at a fraction of our cognitive capacity because of how often we have to check these inboxes. Wow. So in your perfect world, what should we be doing? Like, should we log out of our inbox and only check it twice a day? I've actually come across a lot of people lately who are putting up like an out-of-office message. That's not out-of-office. It's just like, I only check my email at 12 p.m. and 4 p.m. Or they say something like, I'm writing a book right now and I might not get back to you at all. You know, so I'm sorry if you email. It feels really bold as the sender of these emails, I'm like, what the hell? Like answer my email. But then I'm also very inspired because I'm like, huh, that would add a lot of clarity to my workday. And I don't know that it's even possible for someone like me because I do like run a company and venture fund and all these things. But I think that for the average person, that could be really useful. So here's the issue with that approach, with autoresponders, with batching, with turning off notifications, with all of these type of issues that look at improving your relationship to the inbox. My argument is that none of them are going to solve the problem. The issue is 
the fact that the underlying workflow is the hyperactive hive mind. So long as the primary way that collaboration happens at your organization is unscheduled back and forth digital messages, it is a problem when you're not in your inbox. And so we can't solve this by just changing your personal relationship to the inbox, you have to stop all of those unscheduled messages that require a response from showing up in the inbox in the first place. Yeah. I often use the analogy of a boat that's filling with water. A lot of what we've been doing over the last 15 years to try to solve email overload in terms of things like norms and expectations, but also better tools, it's like looking at this boat and A, trying to get better buckets to bail it, and B, putting up signs apologizing for your boat being low in the water, where what you really need to do is plug the hole. Mm. And I think that's what's happening with email. So the reason why we failed with all these approaches, the autoresponder idea has been around since Tim Ferriss in 2007. It largely didn't take root because there's a social psychology dynamic here where the recipient of the autoresponders feels as if this is something that's going to make my life harder that I had no say in, which is a recipe for pushback and something I get to in the book. Mm. But ultimately, the reason why that failed, why email free Fridays fail, why all of the changing norms fail is because those back and forth emails is how work is actually getting done. And until you give an alternative way for that work to get done that does not require the unscheduled messages that show up at any point and need a response, until you get rid of that, we have to go back to the inbox. But how do you do that when it's so systemic, right? Like you can do it even for your team, but then the outside world is still going to email you. Yeah. So you have to do it outward facing too. So now you start to have to put new protocols in place for how do we interact with clients? Yeah. How do new requests come in? How do we deal with our vendors, right? All of these processes have to eventually be looked at and they have to be optimized to get rid of just this back and forth unscheduled messaging. So like one example from the book is a UI firm and they were using Slack with their clients and some of the clients even demanded to have access to the internal Slack channels and it was constant. And they lost two engineers to burnout. So they said, okay, we're going to do something different. They went to a plan that said, you got to sign a client communication agreement when you sign your main contract with us. Here's how it works. Once a week, we have a call. We update you on the project. You ask us any questions you have. We will then put in black and white everything we said and everything we committed to, and we will send it to you right away. That turned out to completely satisfy the clients because what they really wanted was not accessibility, but clarity. And the reason why they were bothering them all the time is that something would come up and they'd be like, I don't want to have to keep track of this issue. This is the client talking. I don't want to have to keep track of this issue in my head. That's a source of stress. And I have no other clear way of how we deal with this. So let me just put it in Slack. But now I don't want to have to remember it. So just respond to me quickly so I can make sure it's resolved. Okay, good. And you multiply that by 15 issues. And now you have this expectation of constant response. Once they had a clear alternative, oh, we have this weekly meeting. Things get written down. It's in black and white. We can hold them to it. We know when we're going to discuss it. They were completely fine with that. And this firm was terrified all their clients would leave. Mm. But clarity trumped accessibility. So yeah, we have to take all of the processes involving collaboration internally, externally, internal, external. And we have to start asking, how do we actually want to implement this? Because the hyperactive hive mind nine times out of 10 is really the wrong answer. It has catastrophic consequences. Mm -hmm. And who are any of the other companies or teams doing this best right now? Like any other examples we can use? Yeah. So there's actually a whole sector that's doing this, right? And that's software development. Because software development is knowledge work in the sense that it's just ideas being written down in a computer, but it overlaps industrial work a lot because you're constructing things. It's kind of engineering, even though that engineering is just non-physical. So they have a lot more innovation over there about how they think about processes because they have one foot in the, you know, I'm at a computer typing world, but one foot in the we're building things world. A long time ago, the software industry put in place these project management methodologies, typically agile methodologies like Scrum, like Kanban. They get very specific. 
about where's the information about what's being worked on? How do we figure out who's working on what? How do we keep track of who's working on what? How do we talk to each other about the work that needs to be done or what people need from each other? They built processes for all of that. So they're not going to sit there on just email and back and forth and like, hey, I'm thinking about working on this feature. Hey, can you help me out about this? They're going to have a 15-minute standing status meeting every morning where they're all looking at the same board and every feature being added is tacked up on that board on a column that indicates its status. You're working on this. You're now going into a sprint. No one can bother you for two days. All you're doing is working on this feature. We have office hours for our subject matters experts. So if you need to ask someone about this new JavaScript release, here's the hour, two days a week when he's available. You have to wait till then to ask him. You can't email him. So I think they're a great example of an industry that, for various historical reasons, is innovating a lot. Other industries could look to what they're doing and say, what would that look like for what we do? Hmm. I like the office hours approach. I feel like that's really interesting. You could sort of pick your hours, even if it's one hour a day and you're just on Zoom and anyone from your team can pop in and ask their quick burning question instead of you doing all the email back and forth. That's super interesting. So what's your vision then? Do you think this is achievable for us? And on what time horizon? Like what does email and the sort of industry of knowledge work look like in 10 years from now? Well, it's not only achievable, it's inevitable. Why? Because it makes companies way more profitable. So it will happen. We built cars for the craft method for 25 years. Then Henry Ford invented the assembly line. Four years later, everyone was using the assembly line. Why? Because it was 10x faster (laughs) to produce cars. So what we're doing now is such a cognitive disaster that we are operating at a fraction of our potential productivity. So it's inevitable because it's going to make companies way more effective. The good news is, unlike other types of workplace revolutions, most parties are basically in alignment here. So oftentimes when there's a workplace revolution, it is, this is going to benefit this group but it's going to hurt that group. And that tension Mm. is going to be something that is going to hold something back or create issues. When it comes to the hive mind, everyone hates it. Mm -hmm. Employees hate it. Managers hate it. The people who own the companies hate it because it makes everyone miserable. It creates turnover and it's not very effective. People don't produce much value with their brain, right? The only thing holding us back is just that it's complicated to get past it. I mean, we have to look at all these processes. We have to re-engineer all these processes. It's a huge pain. You have to go back just like the assembly line. It's a huge pain. There's a lot of effectiveness and efficiency on the other side of that equation. So I think 10 years from now, something like email will play the role that Mailbox Cubby played 25 years ago. Like, yeah, I check it once a day because there might be like an announcement that was sent there. Or I'm waiting for a contract from a vendor or something like this. But it will have very little to do with your day-to-day collaboration interaction. Just like mm. you want to go to your physical mailbox 25 years ago in the office 55 times a day. And like, yeah, here's how we collaborate. We send memos to each other. We all run back and forth. No, you have other ways of actually working. So I think tools like email, et cetera, of course, they'll be around. They're very useful. But their role is not going to be, this is the backbone of how collaboration is happening. Yeah. And I am assuming that also means Slack and any other messaging chat platforms as well. And then what about text messaging? Because I feel like now people are moving to text because emails can be too slow and Slack's too slow and text now is this all-encompassing place where you're not just getting your work life people texting you. I mean, this morning alone, I had like 10 messages before I even woke up. It has the same connotation as email, right? And it's actually expected to be checked and responded to in a more instantaneous fashion. And you can't put up an out-of-office message. So you just not respond. What should we be doing about text messages? Well, so there's professional and personal. So in, in the professional context, this is just 
the hyperactive hive mind, it works. So if the main way that you collaborate is with back and forth messages, the progression we've seen with tools is, well, how do we make those messages faster? How do we get them to people's attention quicker? If you're using the hive mind, the quicker someone sees and get back to you, the more efficiently the hive mind actually operates. So that's why we went from email to Slack. And from Slack, we're going to people actually using individuals' personal text message numbers. When we get rid of the hyperactive hive mind, we don't have to worry about that anymore. But these tools, I just see them all the same. It's all just different implementations of the same way of working. I wrote a New Yorker article this fall that was titled, Slack built the right tool for the wrong way to work. I think that's the right way to think about it. Like, okay, if we're doing the hive mind, Mm. here's a super hive mind (laughs) tool, right? So if you use the hive mind, you're like, well, this is better than email, but the hive mind makes you miserable. In your personal life, you know, I'm an advocate that you have to move away, even though there is short-term cost to this in terms of relationship repairs you have to do, you have to move away from the model that I am always accessible by text. Mm. Even if you see him, it has to be something where there's a few times a day where I try to catch up on text. Or if obviously you're in the middle of actively trying to meet someone, like, are you over there? No, I'm over here. You know, you're actually doing an on-the-fly coordination with someone. It's a problem in the moment because like the hive mind in your personal life, it's very useful to everybody if they can always reach you with very low friction. I don't have to wait for a phone call. I don't have to hear your voice. I don't have to interrupt you. I can just with barely thinking about it, get you. Yeah, it's convenient for everyone involved. And if they can't, it gets less convenient, but it's untenable. We cannot live in a way where we have a divided attention between what's before us and constant asynchronous ongoing conversation. Our brain can't do that. And so I think we all have to just bite the bullet and pay that short-term social cost to become, and we all know people like this, they're nice, we do things with them, we like them, but we just don't expect they're going to get back to a text if we send it to them right at the moment. Mm-hmm. And obviously this has gotten progressively worse over the last 10 to 15 years with all of these new messaging and asynchronous platforms expanding. I'm very worried about Gen Z. My children are five and six, so they don't have this problem yet, but like the biggest hives are in the teenagers, right? And do you think this is something that they can even break at this point? Or is this embedded into the DNA of how they're going to be living their lives? It's an interesting question because there's two things I'm concerned about. So one concern actually comes from the work of Sherry Turkle, sociologist at MIT, and from her book, Reclaiming Conversation. And one of the things she documents in that book is that face-to-face interaction So like kind of what we're doing right now, we're talking to each other. It's actually very complicated. It's very subtle and it takes a lot of practice. And traditionally, this is what you're doing in childhood, but especially in your adolescence years. This is in part why you have this sort of extreme sociality when you're a teenager. You're learning how to do this. You're talking to people in class and your sports after school and you're going to the parties, you know, and you're like, am I at the right social level to be here? And you're navigating all these cues, training, training, training. By the time you get to the workforce, now you're able to actually interact with clients, interact with your bosses. Gen Z has avoided a lot of that training. It's not their fault. It's just that tools have come in place to say, hey, you can sidestep all that awkwardness. You know, just like, hey, if I don't have to list heavy weights, that seems good in the moment, but then I'm not very muscle bound when I need to fight the mammoth or whatever, you know, (laughs) when I'm an adult. And so she documents this. This is one issue is that Gen Z, this is a generalization, but a lot of members of Gen Z are a lot just less trained and how to actually interact in a non-digital way because they're missing the training. You spend your teenage years in your room on your phone. You never get any of that training. The other thing I'm worried about is that concentration. It's something I care a lot about. I wrote this book a while ago called Deep Work that was about how we undervalue unbroken concentration as the tier one activity that moves our current knowledge economy forward. That's also a practice art, Mm. right? This is also something that you have to get used to, maintaining focus, 
being able to keep your mind's eye on one thing, being comfortable with the boredom that results in terms of lack of stimuli, all of this is trained. We have a generation that every moment is diversion, slightest hint of boredom, right. diversion, while they're studying, while they're talking, while they're reading, everything. So they're not being trained at all about how to actually concentrate. That has economic ramifications because the U.S. economy in particular is heading towards more what we could think of as elite knowledge work. So knowledge work that requires increasingly creativity and skills, non-rote knowledge work. Right. Concentration is the number one skill to do that. Yeah. And we have a generation coming up that's really bad at concentrating. What do, so what do they do? Do they start with like meditation? As you're saying this, I'm like, oh my God, I think of myself as a multitasker. But what I really mean is I can be talking to you and answering an email, you know, doing all these things. And I'm like, I'm not as bad, I don't think, as some of these teenagers I've seen. However, I think we reframe it as multitasking and make it a positive frame and boast about how great of a multitaskers we are. And let's be honest, I'm also a mom. And so I have to multitask in a lot of ways, but it is, it's so different. And it's actually funny. My husband and I were just talking about this. He's like, I just want concentrated time with you during the day. Cause I'm like, we have time together. Like after work, we're with our kids, we're hanging out, we're eating dinner. And he's like, no, I want like literally the walls to be silent, <laughs> no devices, staring into each other's eyes for like one hour a day while we still have energy and not like at 10 o'clock at night. And that's what he means, right? Like this is what not only teenagers need, but like probably most people in the world, right? Especially families and especially now in this pandemic lifestyle. So what is possible though for these Gen Z teenagers and all of us, frankly, to practice concentration? Well, look, I'm a believer you practice a skill you want to get better at. And there's an interesting literature on this in pedagogy about transfer theory. Typically, doing an activity that's semi-related to improve the primary activity doesn't work as well as we think. There's a lot of advantages to meditation, but if you want to be better at concentrating on something hard, practice concentrating on something hard. If you want to be better at, I can stick with a book and get through a whole chapter of a complicated book without changing my attention. Mm -hmm. Don't meditate every day. Try to read a book every day, right? Like you actually need to go and practice the specific skills that you're trying to improve. And in some of my older books, I get into a lot of details about how to do this. Putting increasingly large and frequent moments of boredom into your life is something you can do. You actually train your brain to get more comfortable with the lack of stimuli that it's something mm. that it can tolerate, right? So if in every moment of boredom you give it stimuli, you build a Pavlovian connection, you can never concentrate. So you have to start injecting boredom. You have to do things. I talk about productive meditation sometimes. It's where you go for a walk and try to work on a problem in your head while you're walking. And there's something about the movement that makes this work better. Mm. It's really good training. Because at first, your attention's all over the place, and you keep trying to bring it back to the problem, uh, and over time, you get better at it, right? So you can do that. I used to work with undergrads. We would do interval training. Here's a timer. I'm going to turn this on. It's 15 minutes long. You got to work on this math problem or whatever homework you're doing as hard as you can for 15 minutes. And if you glance at a phone or whatever, we restart the timer. Ooh. But it's only 15 minutes, right? You can do it. Yeah. You don't want to restart it. And then you do that for a while until they're pretty comfortable. You're like, great, now we're doing 20. And you could take about a semester, but I could get an undergrad up to 90 minutes. And so by the end of a semester, wow. they could now lock in for 90 minutes. So it's old-fashioned sort of running shoe, sweat, workouts. Here's the stuff I'm trying to get better at. Mm -hmm. Let me practice that and then just raise the bar, raise the bar. I mean, we should all be thinking about doing that training, but especially that younger generation. Yeah, and I feel like the tactile stuff probably helps too. But I like what you said about boredom. Because I think it's so hard to be bored right now. And this is an issue our entire 
entire generation is facing. What is something we can do? Like, how do we practice boredom? Yeah, I think boredom's an interesting and complicated issue, right? So I don't, for example, lionize boredom as a state that is in itself valuable. Actually, it's a very strong drive, right? So it's something we should take seriously, but we have to be comfortable with it. So the thing I'm worried about is that if you always give a very palatable diversion at the slightest hint of boredom, your brain makes a connection that says, I never am bored. And then you can't do something boring like writing a memo or trying to write some code or whatever the hard thing is in front of you that doesn't have a lot of novel stimuli because your brain says every single time we get a diversion. So then the phone comes out. So getting exposure to a time where you don't have a lot of novel stimuli, I think is good. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't necessarily mean sitting there and doing nothing or sort of white knuckling boredom. A lot of what happens with boredom is that it's a very important drive, right? Anything that feels very disagreeable, that's evolution's way of telling us something important is happening here. It's like hunger feels terrible, right? Because evolution wants us to know you really got to eat. That's really important. So boredom is a very strong drive. I think boredom is telling us, hey, we need to be doing more important stimulating activities. We need to actually go out there. It's basically counteracts the normal animal instinct to conserve energy. Humans have a very strong boredom drive. It's why we invented fire and built, you know, art and civilizations because we have this boredom drive that overcomes the energy conservation. Cats are happy to lay in the sun all day we eventually get bored and want to get up and build something, right? So it's a very good drive. I think of the hyper-palatable distractions you get through, let's say, a phone as basically subverting that drive. Just like hunger is a very natural human reaction, but hyper-palatable processed foods subverts that reaction. And so if you satisfy your hunger with a bunch of Twinkies and fast food, it's actually going to make you worse off because it's hijacking that drive and it's not really what you needed. That's the way I think we need to think about boredom. A, we got to be used to it, but B, we got to listen to it and say, don't give the quick fix here. I want to do the type of activity that boredom's really driving me to do, which is going to be mm. more intentional, more complicated. Typically, it's about having an intention in your head that you're making manifest concretely in the world. I'm going to go work on building this thing. I'm going to fix this thing. I'm going to learn about this thing. It's a little bit slower to get going. It takes longer to dissipate the boredom, but that's really what this drive is pushing us towards. And so getting used to that, responding to boredom through quality intentional activity, not digital fast food, Mm. that's where we need to get. Yeah. I mean, in my recent vacation, I remember just pulling out a beach chair, sitting on the beach. I left my phone at home and I took my watch off because I try to trick myself that I can leave my phone, but I still have my watch, but it's not like an interface like my phone. I think I sat there for one hour and I did have my children near me and I was just like looking at the waves, sort of people watching on the beach. It was this like feeling of such uncomfort inside of me that just wanted like, okay, it's time to go do the next thing. And I like really had to like cram it down and cram it down. And I could only do that on this vacation because so much of my life is being a mom, being a CEO, being a venture capitalist, all these things. And I think that's another exercise for people to just do maybe on the interval training method, right? Is not even to try to be in a state of flow or be productive, but just sit. And to your point, think maybe there's a problem or maybe there's something that's coming up for you. It's a form of meditation, right? In doing just that. Yeah. By the way, what do you think about my watch method? Do you think it's okay for people to like leave their phone behind and just have their watch or to use the new like light phones that don't have apps on them? They just have text messaging and calling. Like, are there any versions of these devices that you will give two thumbs up? Yeah, you can use them. I think the light phone is a fine idea. I think where things like the light phone or feature phone probably should play the biggest role right now is for young adolescents, people of an age where there's a safety and convenience issue in you being able to text me. 
but I don't want you to have TikTok, <laughs> you know? And so I think those phones actually play a really good role there. For adults, most of that stuff shouldn't be on your phone in the first place. And just have the phone off or have it in do not disturb or just sort of get in that habit. It's not that hard to set up your iPhone such that if anyone from your family calls you, it comes right through. Mm-hmm. but everything else is suppressed. The sort of family emergency mode is like a mode we all of us parents should be in probably a lot more. A hack I do actually is I don't even bother with that. No one calls anymore. So you can use calling as the tool that your family uses if they really need you. You don't even have to pick up. It's just, oh, I hear my phone ring. That's the equivalent of my wife saying like, okay, actually I need to talk to you. And then you can have your phone, otherwise all the text messaging turned off. So I don't think it's that hard to transform your phone into something that basically is not that source of diversion. There probably should not be any social media apps on there. Texting should be in that do not disturb with just the emergency people can come through. You know, we can get there pretty quickly, turn this thing back into its original job style idea of like, Mm -hmm. it's a great phone, it's a great music player, it's a beautiful piece of technology, but it's not a constant companion. We can get back to that without Mm -hmm. too much work if we just give a little bit of attention to it. I love it. All right. Well, Cal, <laughs> I kind of feel like I already know what you're going to say, but we like to leave our listeners with a piece of homework every week. <laughs> We've kind of given them a lot during this conversation, but like, what's the one jumping off point? Like, what's the one starting point, the one thing they should do this week to move towards a more digitally minimalist, decluttered life? Well, I'll give two just because professional and personal are so different. Okay. In the professional sphere, just start writing down. Here's all the processes I'm involved in again and again. This is what I do in my job. This, 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 and this. And just stare at that and say, how am I actually implementing these things? How do we talk about these things? How do we spread information? How do we collaborate? The answer is going to be for most of these, we just send emails. And just choose one, a low-hanging fruit process, something you do again and again, but that pretty easily there's some alternative way to not require unscheduled messages. Just change one. And the feeling you get when, for example, oh, I use schedule once instead of just emailing to set up meetings or something like this, right? Just change one thing and it will open your eyes to this idea of these processes can be improved. And when they are, it makes a big difference. Over in your personal life, I like this idea. I call it a digital declutter. You actually take a break from all of this stuff during that time reflect and experiment. What do I actually care about? What do I actually want to do? And then try to rebuild, repopulate that closet from scratch. What do I really want to bring back? And what are my rules for doing it? You're probably going to have to do this a bunch up front. It's hard to get right at first, but do that first declutter. And in your personal life, you're going to feel a huge difference. Mm, Love it. Okay. Well, I'm actually really, I'm going to do this because it's just like so overwhelming right now. So thank you for my personal therapy session today, but for everyone else too, because I hope all you guys listening in will try some of this stuff out. Cal, tell us where we can find you and remind us what your books are as well. You can find me at calnewport.com. I have a weekly essay I write about these things. I also have a podcast called Deep Questions where I answer questions like this from my readers about all these type of topics. And the three most recent books, this is sort of my technology and culture trilogy, is uh, Deep Work, Mm -hmm. Digital Minimalism, and most recently, A World Without Email. Love it. Cal, thanks so much for being here. And thank you for helping us add a little bit more productivity and sanity to our lives. Thank you. Everyone out there, we'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening to Teach Me Something New, a production of iHeartRadio and Brit Co. I'm your host, Britt Morin. Find more information about each episode at Brit.co slash listen. You can also find me on social media. I'm at Brit 
or follow us at Brit and Co. Teach Me Something New is executive produced by Ali Ives and Ali Perry with additional production and sound design by Mark Lemmerjazy and Aaron Peterson. 